Hey everyone, sorry, I'm running just a little bit behind, um, running around doing 50 things at once here. Uh, welcome to episode 102, 102, let's get ready to rumble. Uh, it was kind of a, an interesting week as far as calling the platform is concerned, um, and I've had people obviously ask me what uh, Rumble's acquisition of call-in means. For those of you who aren't aware, this platform that we've been on and got to know each other on here for about just a little bit over a year here uh, was purchased and acquired by Rumble, which is basically streaming video and similar platform uh, last week. And David Sachs, who uh, was the executive of Rumble, basically, or I'm sorry, Colin, basically invented it, created it, and developed and platformed it, uh, has joined the board of directors uh, of Rumble. So there's a lot of questions, and um, if you have them or what you think that might mean, uh, I will say right off the bat that I uh, don't know much. <laughs> Hi, good night, everybody. Um, no, I'm just, it's not something that I got through an email or anything like that. I'm not in touch with people on the platform, um, even as, you know, one of the top two, three shows that's, that's on this, uh, platform. So no, I don't really know what this means for future of call it. If it's nothing changes, I assume nothing changes until I'm told otherwise, I guess. Um, and so I'm hoping that not much changes. I'm hoping that, you know, we can kind of continue to do these because I do enjoy doing them mostly. Um, whether or not that the platform changes to video or what have you um, is not something that uh, I'm aware of. I kind of, I like doing these and just focusing on listening. So whether or not I have to end up doing video or not could be uh, interesting. And I know other guys on like on Twitch and and Rumble do shows. I know the the Aslikin brothers or whatever, Siraj, Inshallah, are over there as well as a few others. And so it may turn out that I'm going to have to figure out, like, I'm going to have to put a big banner on my wall or something like that and put on some pants when I'm doing these. So, um, but as far as, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's an interesting time in Silicon Valley and especially in social media platforms in the sense of how, how much things are just changing in such a rapid amount of time that obviously starts with Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter back earlier or later last year and all the things that are coming from that. And I've written on what I think his new CEO hire means for the future of the platform and putting all ideological stuff aside. I don't care about her politics. I don't really care about, you know, her stances on masks and vaccines and the fact that she spoke at the world economic forum and, and all of this kind of noise, I think, for what Twitter could become in the future is far more interesting than, you know, posting that she advocated for lockdowns at one point. Um, and also, as we're seeing a lot of, you know, older media starting to go under a lot, we saw this with Vice, we've seen this with BuzzFeed. And so it's a time in media and especially particular online and social media where there's just constantly moving parts all the time. And so you kind of have to, or at least I kind of have to be sure to keep up with it and, uh, jump in it. And so here I am on a platform that I participated with and what that might mean going forward, I, I don't really know. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm happy to take questions or thoughts on it. And would you jump? I don't know if Colin just gets eaten up into Rumble and we're doing this on Rumble here in a few weeks or what. Uh, I don't know if they're going to keep it as its own standalone app and kind of just do what we've been doing. So um, I don't know. But if there's things you'd like to see, um, I don't know if they'll listen back on this. 
but there's things you'd like to see maybe integrated with call in or rumble or, you know, things you'd like to see improved or stuff. You can throw that out there. So uh, the higher ups will par- probably be spying and listening on us. So that was kind of the big news. And I know people ask my thoughts on it and, you know, my thoughts are, I don't really know yet until I hear something or, you know, until I speak with somebody at call in or whatever like that, I assume we're just going to do business as usual. And so when I know something, I will pass it on. So that was kind of the news of the week here. Obviously, it's been a big week with a lot of stuff in media. We've had the Durham report that basically revealed that Hillary Clinton kind of started the whole steel dossier rat fuck operation that Democrats then picked up and spent four years investigating Trump on. And as I noted, there, there's a lot of that stuff that you can go listen to other people on that are far more in tune with it. There's Chuck Ross at Free Beacon. There's Jerry Dunleavy at The Examiner. That's much more their wheelhouse than it is mine. But one thing is for certain that this is not something that can get pulled off without the assistance of journalists and several media outlets, NBC, CNN being at the forefront of those. And so the the Durham stuff is also a question of media. And it's also a question of how how does this get dealt with going forward? Um, And so that's obviously a bigger story. Uh, I talked about this clip of Senator Shotgun Frankenstein today. And it's funny because there's always, I've noticed whenever I get geared up to come on here, um, I don't really take notes for these. Um, I kind of just let it fly and see how it goes. But just as I was coming on, there's always something that drops, like as soon as I'm gearing up. And here we have Jeff Stein of the Washington Post, who I talked about today on the podcast, who posted a uh, fabricated and fabulized quote of something John Fetterman said yesterday during the banking uh, Senate Banking Committee hearing on the SBF Bank in San Francisco. And I noted, as many several others noted, that the quote that Jeff Stein of the Washington Post posted was not an actual quote. It's not what Senator Fetterman said. It was a cleaned up quote provided to him apparently now by his office, which Jeff Stein weighed in uh, this afternoon on, and he said, this was a tweet that he then deleted because he was just getting ratioed into the sun, and deservedly so. And Jeff Stein uh, tweeted here this afternoon, yesterday I tweeted this quote provided to me by the senator's office without checking it against the video. Right there, fire his ass. If, if you're an ethical journalistic outlet, I'm, I mean, maybe don't fire him, but this is, that's, worth, that's worth a write-up, shall we say. He just he posts a quote provided for Senator Fetterman's office. I mean, first of all, let's pretend that the senator can actually form coherent words. Let's say it's Klobuchar or whatever. Um, you never just post a blind quote. You check it against the footage or you find a transcript. And he said, uh, I tweeted out this quote provided to me by the senator's office without checking it against the video. That was my fault. Though it captured his meaning... I deleted the tweets and some of the words in the quote were inaccurate. <laughs> some of the words in his quote were inaccurate. Uh, I tweeted at Jeff Stein here shortly before coming on. I'd like Jeff Stein to then po- post the actual quote. He didn't do that, and I don't suspect he will. And I talked about this at length today on the podcast, that the Fetterman stuff still continues to be a media story. That's what it is. It's not a story about his stroke uh, it's not really a story about making fun of his health. You know, we, we poke fun at it and, you know, give him nicknames and stuff like that. This is more a story about how the media is complicit in um, this guy's candidacy, his win, and now his uh, term 
And we obviously see the contradictions between how the media treats Senator Feinstein along with him. But this is a good example, I mean, of everything you don't do. If you're a journalist and a uh, congressman, pretend that George Santos's office provides him a quote. Do you not think that he's going to double check it? Um, of course they would. He posts a blind quote, doesn't post a video, and now he doesn't post an accurate quote. And so that's just who the Washington Post is. So uh, it's funny that there's always, I just noticed something just before I always come on here, and it's kind of one of those fresh things to then discuss. So um, we'll go for just about an hour. I have to have a heart out because um, I have some bodies to bury yet tonight. And so uh, same rose, we, it looks like we've got a good healthy cue. I'm going to take Chet and Alex first. Uh, just because I had to boot them last episode. And so uh, we'll go for probably about an hour or as long as I have callers for this week. And uh, I do plan on being here Friday as well. So uh, if you are if you don't get a chance to get up, just make sure you jump in the queue Friday if you're here. So same ground rules. Um, just again, be, be where there might be people behind you in the queue. I know that I don't always, uh, you know, hurry things along if, if I have someone who has an interesting story or related to the topic at hand. Um, and also just please mute your microphone if you're not talking. If you if you are the caller and you're not talking, just mute your microphone. It just makes it easier for the audience. Helps me focus. It's really more of a me thing than it is anything else. And uh, again, it just makes a, a, a better published recording. So I just wanted to note that, yeah, these are recorded. You can go back and listen to them. You can send them to your, all of your family and friends. So there is that. So we'll just jump up. It looks like uh, we got Chet, Alex, Ben's back there and uh, a couple others. So uh, we'll just jump in. Chet, you're up. Thanks. Uh, I apologize again for having to boot you last episode, but uh, I'm, I'm last call uh, hours now for call and just to kind of keep things up. So I appreciate your patience and go ahead. Hey, uh, hey Stephen. No, it's all good, man. I, I understand. I was more uh, listening in and I chimed, I was going to chime in later after hearing some other people's comments, but um, I really don't have much. Um, going on with this week my i still kind of am on you know last friday's uh topic and like the border and stuff and um you know my thoughts are you know i i echo a lot of the same sentiment that you and some of the other callers spoke of but i'm also a little bit more i would say hard-lined like if anything i think this issue has really i don't want to say radicalized me but you know this issue in particular it, it it's astounding to me that you know we are one of the only, if not the only, first world developed country that allows and tolerates this kind of immigration. I mean, even like, you know, the liberal bastions in in Europe and, and stuff like that, they, they, they don't they don't it, it's an, it's almost impossible to immigrate or live in the in those countries. Like just for example, you know, I think back to like the Somali refugees back, you know, under the Obama administration. And I mean, you know, the U.S. took in, I don't know, like a couple thousand and like, you know, you got Finland and some of these other, you know, European countries taking like 10 or like 20, you know what I mean? So I just don't understand what about, you know, America and this country that we, we tolerate this level of just abuse of the system and stuff like that. And like, you know, and I'm and I'm kind of getting, you know kind of tired of the whole of the trope of oh like you know the, the vast majority are just like you know tired and you know they're just want a better life you, you know what I, I don't really care about if they want a better life or not you know it's disrespectful to the other people who've done it legally 
And I think, honestly, this might be an issue too, kind of how you say with, with, you know, the trans women in sports and stuff, how I think this is going to have to be something that really gets picked up by legal immigrants, you know, who echo and come out and, you know, strongly condemn this type of stuff. Like, you know, guys, what, what the hell are we doing? Like I did this the right way. Like you guys are all bastardizing the process and stuff like that. But I don't know, just, it's just incredible to me that we tolerate this stuff when literally no other country in Europe or Asia, you know, tolerates this level of immigration, like unfettered immigration. I think what's, I think what's going to happen, <clears throat> it, it, it depends on what happens in the 2024 election. But if you see majorities with the GOP in the House, Senate, and obviously the White House, I think what you're going to see is a redefining of what asylum means. Because immigration groups in this country and activist groups and progressive groups uh, basically intercept a lot of immigrants who are coming through Mexico or Guatemala. They're coming up and they're doing these long journeys. And they're basically telling them, when you get in, just say you're seeking asylum and, and you have it because of that you can't expel them. It's just, it's part of the immigration law right now where all you have to do is come in and claim asylum. And they know that. And then, like I said, last week, it used to be, you know, they would hop a fence and run off into the bushes and we never see them again. And now they just walk up to the highway and they, and they look for an immigration official and they just walk up and say asylum. And now you have to process them as asylum seekers. And I think that that's, I think that that in particular is unfortunate that they're abusing that, that, the Biden administration in particular, obviously our media, they're abusing what it means to seek asylum because there are real asylum seekers. The, the, the Cuba is one. And we know that those people get sent back, like real asylum seekers coming out of places like Cuba, some out of Venezuela or whatever. Um, that, I, I think, is going to be the first thing that probably gets tossed out. Uh, the other thing I think you're going to see in immigration reform is birthright citizenship is probably on its way out as well. Um, because that is obviously that is a that is an allure where uh, young men, it's mostly men, they come in, uh, they leave their family, they come in, they get they come into the country, they get processed, they get a slip of paper, they get put on a bus, they get sent somewhere, they get a job, they find housing, and they establish themselves, and then they basically send for their wife and their kids or whatever. And then of course we know that they have a family here. If a, if, a, if a child is born in America, you're automatically an American citizen. And that, to me, is part of the personal goal. And so I think you have to decentivize the reasons why they're coming. And uh, I, I certainly don't think I'm as radicalized as you on this, but I, I look at it and I'm like, that's all this is going to do. All it's doing is, is hurting actual asylum seekers from violent third world nations, which we know they don't think Cuba is one. Um Kamala Harris decides we're going to blame the climate in Venezuela and not the government there. And we know that that's complete bullshit. And so those are the two things I think that are, that are going to be looked at. I think birthright citizenship is on its way out. Now, that, again, depends on if Republicans get a majority. And, you know, especially those are two things that I could probably see, say, a President DeSantis basically putting right on the table right off the bat and saying those are leaving. Um whether it's Trump or not, I don't know. Uh, I think Trump has to answer for why he didn't deal with immigration when it was one of the, you know, the biggest issues that he was actually elected on, other than build a wall, um, because the wall isn't really so much the issue as is overseeing visas. And like you said, this asylum system is what's overwhelming it. They realize, hey, we can just take advantage of it this way. And so I guess 
because you say you're radicalized on it, why do you think it's happening? Do you think it, it's a nefarious replacement plot? Do you think that the Biden administration is trying to create voters by sending them to red districts? Uh, why, why do you think that we're seeing this? Is it just a, a silence? It's just like, nope, nothing I can do. Um, why do you think you're seeing this? It, it, it's, it's tough to say. Um, I'll answer that question uh, in a sec, but I, I'll, I'll slightly push back on the birthright citizenship stuff. I don't, I don't see like, I don't see that going anywhere just because that is, you know, that's one of our, like, it's from the founding of this country, like half the founding fathers and other stuff like that, you know, had, had, you know, children and that, and it branches out from it, from that, like, it's like it, the, 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 the thought process behind all that stuff, you know, coming up through the, through the law and all that is, you know, we have diplomats and other foreign people, but maybe you could tailor it or, you know, maybe narrow its, 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 its applicability to maybe U.S. citizens. You get birthright citizenship or something like that. I don't know. But to talk, to touch on your other point about, you know, why I think they're doing it. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't buy the whole, you know, great replacement like theory, you know, whole, whole cloth. I mean, it, do, do, do all Western countries have diminishing birth rates, you know, besides Israel? Yes. You know, we have an aging population. We're going to need, you know, a younger base of people to, you know, support if we continue to have all these entitlements like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff. We're going to need a younger population to, you know, draw taxes from. But, you know, I think it's more of I think it's almost it's not like a nefarious or an intentional thing. I mean, it's intentional. But, but my thought is. I think it's just they think that they're the good guys. I honestly think that most of the Dems and the liberals, they think that in their mind, they're the good guys. They're like, what we're doing, it's almost like the climate climate stuff that we like talk about. It's like, you know, I, we must sacrifice for the good of the planet and stuff like to, to, to make it a better world. Whereas, you know, we in the West, we have so much and are so wealthy, like, we we must give back to these less fortunate people and allow them to you know share in our country's prosperity and and whatnot. So I I think it's coming from a place of maybe a, a combination of ignorance and also just like true diehard belief that like we are the we are the we are right. Like history will remember us you know in a kind light. I I don't maybe there are in you know some elements of it are maybe a bit more nefarious, like, oh, like if we pump, you know, a ton of, uh, you know, a ton of people into like a red, a red state or whatever, we can, you know, flip a district. But I I don't think that's the prime reason just because, you know, it's, it's been, it's been borne out in the statistics that, you know, a a large majority of, well, not, I won't say a large majority, but a large portion of, you know, Hispanic, you know, immigrants and just voters generally, have been trending towards the GOP, you know, for a number of years. I mean, since Bush, it's only gone, it's only gone up. And I, and I, and I, you know, I don't see that changing because, you know, traditionally most immigrants and Hispanic, you know, f- just cultures value, you know, family, God, you know, c- traditionally conservative values and stuff like that. So I, I don't think it's more that. I think it's more of just a, you know, like I said, they just, they honestly just think like, this is the right thing to do. So we must do it. You know, I I don't, I don't think it's more of a, I don't think it's an organized plot or anything like that to, to, 
to like change politics and stuff like that. I mean, and I, but you know, like hat and glove with hand and glove with that is that, you know, they, they think they're doing what they're doing is, you know, morally right. But when they see the effects of it, they can turn, they turn the blind eye, you know, when there's, you know, the thousand plus, you know, migrants under that bridge in Texas, like in a hundred and some degree heat and, you know, people are passing out and dying and this, that to them, it's more, they can turn their nose up or turn their head to it because in the back of their mind, they're like, well, you know, progress for progress to be made, you know, some, some, some things need to be broken and stuff like that. You know, it's the, the, the this air. Yeah. I, I do think it's ideological and, and chat. Thanks. I'm going to move on to Alex. So it's good to hear from you. And again, thanks for your patience from last week. Um, I do think that it's some of its ideological base, um, but th this is certainly the most aggressive push uh, or surges of, of immigration that I think we've ever, um, you know, going back to Bush, Clinton, whatever we know about Reagan's amnesty plan. Um, but I've, I've never seen numbers like this. So I look at it, I'm like, something's driving this. And obviously we know based on emails that the Department of Homeland Security through the Biden administration is coordinating with Mexican officials on making sure these people, <laughs> you know, get, get up here safely and arrive and, and cross over safely. So um, I do think that the asylum claim is going to be the biggest thing that's going to probably be addressed. So we'll see. That's obviously should the GOP not fuck up and not get majority. So Alex, welcome back again. Apologies for having met you last time, but that's good. Hey, Stephen. Um, so I don't have a lot of input on surrounding the border crisis that uh, the U.S. is facing. But what I will say is that having lived in a country for like 28 years uh, where the immigration system has been hailed as um, the envy of the world simply because they know how to control their borders. So just to give you a brief history on uh, regards to Australia and immigration. So yeah, you, I know I know um, how you guys control your borders. Well, one, yeah. you're an island and two alligators. Lots of fucking alligators. <laughs> but sorry, go ahead. But okay, so the the thing is, um, just to I'll just short it up to twenty years. 20 years, because I think this is really critical in understanding how people respond to immigration. Now, a lot of people, like Australia is uh, a country of immigrants. It's one of the mo most multiracial countries that you'll ever find. However, at the same time, people react to immigration more differently than when they um, arrive to it. They think, you know, they arrive for it through merit or through, through something or rather that, you know, they think they earned it, more or less earned it, and then they do a citizenship test, and then they uh, they spend a couple of years in Australia to become like a resident or a citizen. Now, what happens in Australian politics when it comes to immigration is that if you simply just let the borders lose or you refuse to do anything with the borders, the, the Australian people will boot you out. So uh, John Howard, the, um, the Conservative Prime Minister, uh, around 2001, like days before the election, basically said, uh, see, saw a boat um, of uh, immigrants and they were asked if they can um, come to Australia. But John Howard basically said no, 
and therefore he basically got like you know the uh he got not only got the votes but he also got some of the the members of the Liberal Party, which is the centre-right party in Australia, um, not to uh, defect into the minor parties, which were waiting for the Liberals to fail on this. Now, this happened again in around 2013 when, you know, asylum seekers seekers were intercepted uh, across the borders and, you know, Tony Abbott was... um, Tony Abbott was elected just to stop the boat. It's really simple. It was really effective. And that was the one thing that he, one promise that, one of the promises that he actually uh, achieved. And now we got this, uh, this prime minister where, you know, they decided to, he wants to boost um, immigration. But for some reason, he doesn't want to spend on infrastructure, which I find to be quite odd because doesn't immigration, like, from their argument, basically says that it's economically beneficial? Like, why would you do that at the, at the expense of not spending anything on infrastructure or, for that matter, construction? Because we're at, the, at the moment, we are living in a massive housing crisis. And I think the, um, the idea that immigration could just uh, vacate these houses is, um, is fundamentally wrong. And I think that um, as things as things get worse, you know, a lot of the, the people will think, you know, not that, that that they think it's they hate immigrants because of their uh, because they're inherently racist, but because they think that you know the cost of living is getting rough, much tougher, and you know the prime minister doesn't really do much about it so i can see like the effects that immigration would have um to have even even if there's a border crisis these effects are not recognized by um by mainstream media because they just don't want to feel like they're the bad people who ostracize like migrants Every every now and then, and I'm for, for that matter. I am a migrant. Uh, I'm 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 raised and born in a migrant family, um, but you know you got to see this uh, as a reality just coming in. What? Let's say I get on an airplane and I fly into Sydney, and obviously I need to have a passport to do all of that. And I'm, I'm going. I'm I'm kind of skimming here. Um, and let's say I want to stay and I don't go through any kind of visa process or whatever. How, how would they go about finding out my immigration status? Like if I wanted to rent an apartment or, you know, let's say I'm doing, let's say I'm for the most part self-employed, I'm not going to go work anywhere. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, what what are the steps for them then to, to find out my immigration status and then deport me if if that's like what I choose to do? Well, here's the thing. Here, I'll add to this. Um, our Australia's immigration system is immigration. The way they view immigration is through a points based system. So basically, if you do a lot, if you add a lot of economic benefit, or you're presumed to add a lot of benefit to the work, to the country and to the profession that you are doing, then you're more than likely to become an immigrant. I think if you are, given that you are like a, a commentator of... So yeah, I just I just want to drink sure. Foster's and shitpost. 
Yes, yes, okay. of course. If if you are not, if you are a commentator of a sort, I'm not quite sure what benefits do they think you are adding. Like but, if you're but, working so for... so far as they, but let's say they don't know that I'm even in the country. Does that make sense? Like. I'm basically yeah. staying illegally, so I guess I don't know what it would take for me, obviously, to like uh, rent or buy a, a home or an apartment or a, a condo or what have you. But like, so I'm saying, like, what, what, how would they end up even catching me um, if I, if I guess, if I'm on a residence, I would have to, you know, report in that sense to the state. But so that's kind of my question: is is how does someone get through the system there, and what happens when they find out that you are? If they come and they knock on my door one day and it's like, you got to go. Um, n- no offense. I'm not making fun of the accent. Um, what what are the steps in place that would do that, that would facilitate? Um, well, yeah, it, do- it does make sense. I mean, the people who are like Australia is, a, is quite comfortable with immigration, but they don't know where to sense illeg- illegal immigration when it's... Um, when they smell it, like the uh, um, when, I, when I was talking about the boats, that's the one thing that they um, think about because that's on that's that was covered in like the TV news or the news that they watch or they they consume. Um, but I, to be honest, not a lot of people have an idea of what actually what they actually mean by just you know becoming like a resident of. Uh, a resident of some sort, like, um, and it's maybe because, you know, maybe it's it's because that they can't, they will just tolerate anything uh, wherever wherever you go. Like, we are an incredibly tolerant um, nation. Just don't talk about the fact that we basically, uh, we basically have less freedom compared to you guys. But if you're going, but, you know, no, it's a very it's a very complicated issue, and for what it's worth, once they it's more like a vibe of what's gonna happen. Like if they think that the immigration, the migrant crisis is getting what the housing crisis is getting worse because of the effect on immigration. I mean, we are taking taking more uh, migrants than we have um, slowly um, since the pandemic began. Because we close the borders, obviously, then I think it will just be up to it will just be up to the people. I think a lot of people don't have an idea. Like basically, not a, not a lot of people understand how is it that uh, what makes a, a legal immigrant and what what doesn't, unless they know a bit about the country, unless they know a lot about the language that they uh, that they are residing in. That's for sure. Does that answer your question? Uh, for the most part, like I said, I'm. Uh, I was just curious, like how, and I think someone said it in comments. You know, like if I just decided to get on an airplane and fly into Sydney or or wherever, and I just decided to stay, what is the pro? And I and I have no interest in like applying for like legal status. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move there. I'm gonna hit a beach. I'm gonna drink some Fosters. I'm gonna continue to shit post. And I just want to stay in Australia for as long as possible. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering, like, how what what mechanisms do they have in place there to either kick me out 
or let me stay? Like, would, would they care? What, do, do I have to apply for status? I'm basically saying, like, let's say, let's say migrants, like you said, and I'm not even saying like migrants on a boat, you know, wash up from China or wherever, um, or what have you. I'm just part of it's the problem with American immigration isn't so much the southern border as much as it is people overstaying visas. And uh, the visa system is completely fucking broken here. Um, I've lived with someone who was British national and they had to go the, the, the amount of shit that they had to go through to just renew a visa, the, the amount of money and everything is insane. It's it's one of the most insane things I've ever seen is just firsthand for someone to go through that just to even get a permanent visa status. And that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of where I was just poking you on the sense of if I just wanted to come to Australia and, and just enter the country with my passport and then rip it up and throw it away and say, I'm staying here. I'm not moving. I'm going to hang out with the dingoes and I'm going to do my thing. Um, what mechanisms they have in place for either, de- you know, detecting me or just, is it just, Hey, you're, you're cool to stay as long as you know, you don't go causing trouble with the locals basically. So, uh, I mean, for the most part, yeah, I mean, you got it. I'm like I said, I'm completely unaware of what immigration is like in Australia. I know about, you know, the strict lockdowns from COVID and stuff like that. But as far as like just normal immigration, I think about that. And even in the sense of like Europe, like if I just wanted to fucking fly to Paris and live there <laughs> and not deal with like a visa or a point, like, like you said, a points or anything like that. I wonder how, like how easy it would be for me to just do that as opposed to, you know, migrants coming into France from uh, other nations. So that, that's kind of, what I was I'll give you a um, yes. Uh, so, one last thing before we go. So, Elon update. Elon is, for some reason, have you seen the interview that he did with NBC? I, I haven't watched the CNBC interview in whole. I've seen bits of it. I just haven't had a chance to sit down and actually watch it. Um, I know that he's getting, both CNBC is getting criticized for it as, as well as he is. And I know that that's what Ben Collins was talking to Chris Hayes about uh, on the clip. Yeah, I think um, for what it's worth, I think compared to the BBC interview, not that, not that I'm saying that the interview looks good uh, for both MS, for both NBC or Elon. I'm just saying that compared to the BBC, it looks far more professional. Like Elon is just just thinking about an answer like if i were if i were elon if i was to answer the if i were to answer the guy's question about saws i'd be just like hey you know what i'm giving you the answer that you deserve or i could just tell him i can fire like i'm the owner of tesla i could do whatever i want with it because i control the company and i could throw my lot in throw why, if people don't like my opinions, then they could leave. You know, I think, you know, Elon for being, for being the world's richest man, I think he would, would try something like this. I don't, I don't know. I just feel like it's quite chaotic and I'm looking forward to um, the new C, the new WEF CEO that we're going, that we're going to have. have and, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think she's gonna make a I don't think she's gonna make a lick of ideological difference. So I thought there I thought 
his interview with her at the World Economic Forum was fascinating because I think that that's exactly what they're going to try to bring to Twitter, which is we need to balance free speech and we need to we need to balance that with the need for big time advertisers, especially if you're going to be offering long format streaming similar to Rumble or whatever uh, for Tucker Carlson and for, you know, he offered one to Don Lamont as well. And so I think she's there because she comes from NBC Universal, I think she's there to kind of settle the advertisers and say, um, just basically say, look, things are going to fine. Yeah, he's a little kooky. He, tweet, he tweets weird stuff. Um, and, and I think she's there to just kind of settle big advertisers and say, hey, here's, here's where Twitter's going to go, and you're going to want to be a part of this. Um, and, and as I wrote both at you know Spectator and I've talked about on the podcast, I think that that's infinitely more fascinating than, again, you know, her hosting a, a, a panel at the World Economic Forum, which I'm no fan of. Everyone kind of knows that. Um, but um, I think that that's what his goal is. I think his goal was originally maybe to kind of compete with Substack. And then I think he saw an opening with Tucker Carlson and said, why don't you just keep doing your show? But you don't have to do it on TV. You don't even have to do it. Just do it on Twitter. And I think Carl, and I don't know if any money was exchanged, if he signed a contract with Elon to do that or whatever. Um, but I think that that's probably going to be the first thing that happens. And of course, you're going to see the Ben Collins, you're going to see the journalists are going to go after advertisers. As soon as Tucker Carlson hosts a show and he says something inflammatory about replacement theory or some shit like that, you're going to see the Ben Collins and the Taylor Lorenzes and the Brandy, and they're going to go after advertisers of Twitter. And they're going to say, you're advertising on Twitter and this content and Lara Saccarino, whatever her name is, I think is there to basically answer advertisers and say, hey, you know what? We're also offering content to Don Lamont. We're also offering content from, you know, uh, maybe Media Matters gets to host a show or something. Or The Young Turks is another one. And so I, I can see that being kind of the future. Do I know that for a fact? No. But it's when you look at her background and you listen to previous conversations, that's to me is least uh, what it all signals. So, um, I, I mean, we'll certainly see, um, he, he is interesting in the sense of when he interviews, I think he, he looks at it as, as a challenge to get away, to get, um, to get around questions. And he likes to pose questions back to interviewers. And I, 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 I view Elon Musk very similar to Trump in the way that our media and journalists underestimate his media acumen. I think he understands, where a lot of these conversations are and journals don't because he is someone who actively uses the platform. And I think that that's interesting in the sense of he is the complete antithesis of old Twitter, old Twitter managers and PR people. They never used the product. They fucking hated the product. And now we see why, because they blame the product for basically electing Donald Trump. And so to have someone who engages with the actual thing that he owns is interesting and guys like Ben Collins don't really understand when he says, you know, Titans of industry are going to just have enough of this guy. And Ben Collins looks at Elon Musk as just a meme shit poster. And Ben Collins isn't seeing the millions of dollars invested in Tesla and SpaceX behind him. And that's a problem. Okay. Um, another, another thing. So would you be able to watch Make it Tucker, a little bit quick. Tucker, Go ahead. Yeah. Would you be able to watch Tucker on Twitter or on Rumble? Because I think Rumble would be a better. It'd be platform. Twitter. He's he's bring he's bringing what is what is rumored to be his old hour long or thirty minute show to Twitter. He's gonna so eight p.m. 
live or it might be pre-recorded, but then so 8 p.m. every night or maybe 8 p.m. once a week, he's going to have a show on Twitter. You go to Tucker Carlson's Twitter account or they might create an interface like Twitter Spaces. So, you know, when you go to Twitter Spaces, you hit the button, it brings up Twitter Spaces. So it might be Tucker Carlson is now broadcasting and then you click a button and that thing like a monitor comes down or whatever. And there's Tucker Carlson just doing his show. Um, I think most likely it'll be from their Twitter feed. So you go to Tucker Carlson's Twitter feed and then there's a, you know, right there, maybe at the top of his profile will be a live broadcast. And so I do think you're going to see interface changes to accommodate all of this. Um, how long that takes, I don't know. Elon's kind of proven to just be a guy where it's just like, just do it first, figure out the rest later. And so it could be where it's just a video format on his page at first. And then Elon goes in and tweaks it and says, oh, let's do this instead. And that, you know, make, and that seems to be how he operates, especially the platform. So, um, but I, that's where I do see Twitter going. I, he's going to try to make it a streaming media platform. Um, he already has the, the, the user base. A lot was made of Tucker Carlson's views on his videos after he was left Fox. People were like, well, look at this. He has 40 million views on his video and Fox only had, you know, 2 million on their shows. And I think that that's where they got this idea. They said the eyeballs are already here. We just have to maximize how people use it. And so, again, I don't have any, I don't have background information. I'm, uh, I'm just kind of guessing based on, you know, the steps and moves that have been made. Um, but I'm usually pretty good at this stuff. So that's just how I see it going. All right. Good to talk to you, Stephen. Thanks, Alex. Go ahead and... All right. I'm going to try to get through everyone here. Like I said, I do have a little bit of a heart out. Um, just running a little bit, but I will be back here Friday. So if, if I don't get to you guys... Uh, I'll make sure to get you up first on Friday. Uh, ben. Um, Andy, look, just quickly to answer your question from the last speaker, because um, also Australian, so it's the Australian Power Hour in here. Um, effectively, if you're caught in the country without a visa um, or without a, a current visa, and that can be done numerous ways, trying to get you know, a, a local license or accessing welfare. I'm unsure if it works with regards to trying to rent formally, but if you're caught without a visa, um, depending on how you're assessed as like a, you know, a risk of kind of disappearing back into the country, um, you can be detained in detention centres um, until, ex, you know, until you're forcibly removed from the country. So like 1933 uh, can... Germany, Hitler concentration camps all over again? Oh, very much so. Very much so. <laughs> um, but how would you get so caught? Can... That's what I mean. Like... Yeah. Other than let's say let's say I, I get in, in a fight with a kangaroo and the cops are called and then obviously they come and they check my ID or they check whatever or they figure out that my immigration. But if I just like kept to myself and, you know, you know, just did my stuff, how how would they know without me like registering with an immigration? Um, so beyond, I guess, being picked up by the police for, say, routine checks, um, because my understanding is um, the state's. The states in the country do share information. So if you're picked up for a routine traffic stop um, or registration check or whatever it is by the police, they can then work out that um, there is you know, a warrant out because you've overstayed your visa. Um, but, let, but let's say I didn't buy a car. Like, let's say I just take Ubers. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, there are ways to not get caught. Um, do you guys have Uber down there? Uh, we do, we do. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> 
I figured you did. I don't want you to yeah. make it sound like I think you guys are all like living in the woods with spears and stuff. I just I wasn't sure. I, I figured you guys would have Uber down. Um, like you couldn't access a lot of financial institutions. Um, so, but there are definitely ways. We do have people that do remain in the country without visas, but um, effectively, once you're detected, um, it's it's pretty quick. Uh, you can be detained pretty quickly, and then removed from the country pretty quickly after that. And we will charge you for your detention as well, just for shits and giggles. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to find another place to go live illegally then. Screw you. I mean, we've got a lot of bushland. Um, you can just go <laughs> live in the bush. There, there are insects the size of, like, small dogs in that bushland. I'm not going to go, like, build build a house out there. Oh, uh, you know, fair enough. Um, look, the only thing I really want to talk about, I know it's a bit a bit slow on the uptake, but the Cleopatra race swapping stuff, um, I found even more dumb yeah, than that's a fun the one. usual race swapping stuff. Um, because if you know anything about Cleopatra and the Ptolemies, they were actually Greek. They came out of the collapse of Alexander the Great's empire. They didn't speak Egyptian. They ruled Egypt from effectively a giant palace in Alexandria. Um, they inbred amongst themselves to avoid becoming more like a local population. Um, so th this notion that that Cleopatra and the Ptolemies were African, when you understand the history of Cleopatra- No, no, they're not just culturally, They're culturally African-American is the argument that the Egyptians, yeah. because they were an oppressed people, just like African-Americans, that the Egyptians then themselves are, are cult culturally black, was the argument. And if you use that argument, um, you can make the argument for any oppressed race. You can say the Jews are black. Tell that one to Farrakhan and Al Sharpton and see how. Well, I mean, to be fair, Kanye does say that, you know, African-Americans are <laughs> Kanye, people alike, yeah. But, um, <laughs> you never have to head into them, but yeah, yeah I mean. To say, tell Louis Farrakhan that the Jews are are actually black, and and watch yeah. watch that bow tie of his. Yeah, or, or, you know, t tell the Jews that you know the Egypts were the yeah Egyptians were oppressors. Um, so you could do something interesting with Cleopatra, where it's like she, you know, she's an oppressor in a way to the Egyptian people, but then she also is suddenly finds herself being oppressed by, you know, the Romans, and you could do something smart with it, and I think it just demonstrates that this the obsession with race removes or degrades the ability to tell interesting stories even through the lens that they look at it yeah um, yeah it's, it's, it's like, yeah. you see this a lot with our media now which is they're trying to find a race angle and, and this is academia as well they're trying to find a race angle on things that have nothing to do with it like nothing and it's just here's a thing how can we find the race angle or how can we imprint a race angle on this? And it's just what kind of social justice busybodies do. Um, there's a story in the LA times that I might get to on the podcast about the, the white woman and the black woman who became DEI partners in traveling the country and giving speeches. And now they don't speak to each other because of the, the white woman's privilege or something it's a, it's a hilarious story that you think would be out of a christopher guest mockumentary if it wasn't true um and if you think that the hot take on cleopatra and this started with a netflix series who made cleopatra black and this is a thing with netflix um they're race swapping a lot of historical figures and 
I, you know, I, part of me with fictional characters, I don't really care. Uh, I, I don't care if James Bond is a black guy or a white guy. I don't care if fictional characters are doing this stuff. But when you get into presenting history the certain way, you're getting into, depending on how it's artistically framed, you're getting into some touchy ground. And, and I talked about how Hamilton, for example, um, I look at Hamilton as a work of performance art. I don't look at that as this is a historical biography thing um, because it would look a little odd if you had a bunch of, you know, white dudes and wigs hip hopping. And that's the thing with Hamilton. The whole play is hip hop. It's not just the songs. It's the every piece of dialogue almost except for the king. And so this has been a, an ongoing pattern with Netflix, which is, I don't know if they're commissioning projects to do this on purpose or what, um, but if you think the takes on Cleopatra are hot now, right now in development is a Cleopatra film with Patty Jenkins, who's the director of Wonder Woman, and Gal Gadot, who is Israeli, and she's going to be playing Cleopatra. And buddy, if you think the takes are off the charts now, just wait, just wait till the first trailer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and Hamilton works because it, it works because the point of Hamilton in part is to demonstrate that the ideas of the American founding uh, are not racially specific. Yes. They are they are ideas that can be adopted by all cultures and creeds. Yes. Um, so it can work. It can absolutely work. It can work as a strong artistic choice. These people just seem to lack the ability. Um, and, and the the cherry on top is that, yeah, the Egyptians are pissed off at it because, you know, they find it offensive. But they yeah. find it offensive just to throw another kind of card on top because it's erasing their Arabness. Yeah. So it's, it's not about Cleopatra being Greek or, or African. It's about her not being Arabic, which Egyptians which, back and, in the day and, were. And, the, and you run into that when you start, when, it's, when it becomes brinkmanship about who is the more oppressed victim here, this is naturally where this discussion goes. Um, I, I think you're seeing a lot of that right now in the gender debate, which was, you know, first it was the gays that are oppressed and then the gays got gay marriage and they won a couple of court victories and Supreme Court and everything. And now it's, you know, the trans communities. What about us? And I don't even think it's trans community. I, I hate saying that. Um, I mean, I know trans people are perfectly fine, you know, nice people to, to hang out with. Um, so I even hate saying the community because I, I don't think you know, Charlotte Clymer is overall representative of that community, especially considering his history. Um, but when, when you get into the discussion of who is, who is more oppressed, <laughs> it, it just leads to bloodshed. Like, and, and what, what am I supposed to do? I'm, you know, I'm a fucking white dude. I just sit back and let it happen. Like, I, I don't care. Let you, let you guys just tear each other's eyes out over this because we're there's very few there's there are places in this world where people are oppressed and the current smart set of academia and our media don't want to discuss any of them because they don't really fit into you know 16 yeah that's it um look I'll, I'll let you go i know there's other people ahead just one more point um so biden's canceled his trip down under um so I'd like yeah to he, he, he was supposed McCarthy. to visit he was supposed to be a historically uh, visiting Papua New Guinea is the first president yeah. to ever do that, and and they had to call. So, on behalf of the people of Australia and Papua New Guinea, I'd like to thank Kevin McCarthy and the GOP uh, Congress because uh, the last thing we need is Hunter Biden coming down here, getting his fingers in our energy companies, and then us having to take a perfect phone call 
from President Trump in 2024 <laughs> or 2025 asking for more evidence on him. We don't need to be wrapped up in that. And and that one, and you don't want Hunter Biden like dabbing into that wonderful island cocoa. No, that you we'll, have we'll miss his expertise on energy, but uh, we'll get by. Cheers. Dave. Thanks, Ben. I'm going to move up. I'm going to try to get through as many of you guys as possible. So uh, we got four. Uh, we can maybe we can probably do this a little. Sorry, <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to hit me up so soon. <laughs> no, I'm 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 trying to move. I'm moving along the queue. You get like five words, and then I'm going to boot you. So make them. Okay, so, I should. I really should uh, do like a lightning the, round call in one of these times. Like I just, oh, I, yeah, I give people like two minutes to say their piece and then boot them. We might do that. That that might be a fun thing to do on Friday. So just, everyone throws out their first two minute hot take, and then I. Can't. So um, I found it very interesting that New York City was going to house all those migrants in schools, and then parents got pissed. Which I don't blame them because you can't pa put your parents kids in, a in Williamsburg. Place. Pretty much the most gentrified part of New York City right now. Oh, was it? Well, I don't. I don't know. But the point is, is you can't put kids in a school full of migrants. Why not? You don't know any There's of those a statue. people. In... There's a poem on the statue that says we can. It's no, our. It's our, it's our duty not. to do no. so. <laughs> it's our duty no. to do so. Even. No. So anyway, they the parents freaked out, and now they're taking them somewhere and i'm wondering what about all that office space that they're not using in new york <laughs> yeah that, that's an interesting is... not even so much around immigration i mean that's in it's in lots of cities where pandemic has just like emptied out cities they talk about it in san francisco they're, they're trying to blame that on the crime and uh you know i think it's walgreens leaving san francisco one of those companies and well, my... um they're trying to blame the fact that downtowns are empty now so they're trying to blame the fact that, you know, companies aren't coming back to downtown. Well, of course, companies aren't going to do it if they can save money. Exactly. And it, I mean, my sister and my brother-in-law have not been back into a physical office space since COVID. Like they work from home exclusively. Yeah. My, 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 my brother's office space was eliminated completely. Um, he does, he does engineering and coding and his company completely, I think it's, and he works for a pretty small company, but they completely, eliminated their office as well and i think that this is a big and actually a really big problem it's a um it, there's going to be like a huge these the the owners of the office space aren't going to be able to pay their mortgages it's going to be bad what happens economically because of this like i don't think people will realize yeah, and I mean, it's certainly, I mean, you make a point about a city in New York. The thing about, you learn about New York is they all want migrants there, but they just don't want them near them. And that's yes, what we exactly. saw with, um, I mean, and that's just what you learn even from living there. It's like they talk about being a cultural melting pot, um, or you even see this in Washington, D.C. I think it was Susan Glazier, the New Yorker, and I brought this example up where there was a shooting and a carjacking in Georgetown. And her response was, that's not supposed to happen in this neighborhood. And everyone kind of went with, tell us more, you know, like, and that's kind of the part of New York where it's, we all, we all want migrants. We all want this. And then when you say, like you said, Hey, let's put them in an office building on the upper West side. 
uh, suddenly all the residents who were paying, you know, <laughs> who paid over $80 million for their condo in Upper West Side and the Paul Krugmans, they're like, no, 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 we don't want that. We don't want them around us. Go go move them to Harlem or put them in the Bronx somewhere. Um, and I think what's really interesting is all of this is happening while a certain congresswoman from that district is remaining completely silent on any of it. Um, but yeah, that's the thing you learn about New York City is they always talk about what a great, wonderful melting pot it is culturally, and it is. Um, it's probably the most culturally diverse place that I've certainly ever lived. Um, but when you do have an influx of migrants like this, like we saw with Martha's Vineyard or even Chicago, it's no, we don't want them on this. We don't want them hanging out outside of, of our streets. Make them go hang out at the Home Depot. And it, it is one of the like the worst cases that you see, especially in New York City. And so all of the empty office space that's near Times Square, or, uh, you know, up I want to say midtown to the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side. Nope, we can't have them. We don't want them hanging around Central Park and dirtying up everything. And that's really what they Oh, yeah, 100%. It's always like the, the dirty, bad Texans can take care of these migrants. I don't want them. It's so infuriating to watch, but it's also funny. But I'm glad the parents won and got the migrants out of the schools because that was... I don't even know. Now they're talking about putting him at Rikers Island. <laughs> and I just, ah, yes. and I'm just kind of like, <laughs> it's, you know, and we talked about this on Kennedy last night. So then he was looking at busing them upstate and putting them in hotels and they had to kick wedding guests out of a hotel. And I'm thinking, isn't, why is that not human trafficking? Why is it when they get put on a flight, all expense paid flight and dropped off in Martha's Vineyard, that's Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott human trafficking them. But when Eric Adams puts them on a bus and sends them to Chicago, you don't hear peep about it. And it's because they know how dishonest that talking point is. And they also know how bad it looks when they say, you can't drop these migrants off in my city. And I mean, to this day, again, I, I don't understand how DeSantis and Abbott backed them into that corner. All, they, all Eric Adams had to do was publicly come out a statement and say, I know what you're trying to do here, governors, uh, but I'm going to tell you it's not going to work. We're going to welcome these people into our city with our open arms. We're going to give them, you know, warm meals and all of this stuff. And then when the microphones shut off, you go into the back room and you go, holy fuck, what are we supposed to do here? And the fact right. that they actually come out and they're like, please stop sending them to us. Uh, to this day, I, I don't know how um, they got them to do that because it is an unequivocal, despite what you think the Washington Post is saying, it is an unequivocal optics win for Abbott and DeSantis. And these, hmm, I don't even know what, how to put it. It's, it's always, as long as somebody else has to deal with the problem. That's what all liberals are like. And I mean, I live in Portland, for God's sake. It's fine that we have camps as long as it's not in, you know, um, the West Hills. That's fine. Just have the camps in my neighborhood. Mm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely the, right. The homeless camps. It's where we under we are here for people and we understand people and we're here to lift people up and we care. And then when it's like, okay, care for them. It's, well, no, I can't do that. Someone else has to do that. And you're right yeah. that in a nutshell, that's the ideology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fine that I have to like try to avoid hitting the meth heads driving to work because <laughs> I live in Northeast Portland. <laughs> but, you know. I don't live in the West Hills, so I guess I just don't get that privilege of not you having say, to run a you gauntlet. You say you're, you're, you're in Northeast Portland? Yeah, I'm near the airport. So you, Oh, okay. So that's way Northeast Portland. So cause yeah. I, I lived off, uh, I lived in three parts of Portland, but I, I did live in 
northeast. I lived in right off kind of Gatton Bine Avenue n- near oh, okay. yeah. near Mississippi where all those fun shops are and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I live very northeast. I can see M- Mount St. Helens if I walked down to the end of my street. The only reason I can't see it from my house is because the other houses and trees are in the way. Yeah. So. Anyway, no, that's no, all. You're right. That is, it is a driving part of our ideology, which is we're we're here to like help all of these people. And then when you're like, okay, help them, uh, it's no, it's your problem and and not to deal with. So no, nope, yeah. you're right about that. Okay, well, I that's all I have to say today. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yep. Thanks, little red. Uh, Joe, go ahead with with a weird avatar. So I'm assuming someone changed their name or someone stole a picture. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I put my name on that for something. I don't know why, but my deal is: is there anything on that Statue of Liberty poem or otherwise that that says we have to have an FBI? <laughs> No, I, I've been pushed violent. I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a you know, an, a, I distrust all kind of authority anyway. Um, but I, I've been pushed fully into defund and abolish and salt the earth where their building is. Um, I, I just think, I mean, going back to their founding, they've always been a skeezy agency. Um, and I guess I look at this and I'm like, if you guys can't catch mass shooters and, uh, if that's not going to be kind of your top priority, because every single one of these fucking guys is on your radar and you know them. And if you're going to start investigating parents and if you're going to start being used as a political tool, then we have no use for you and you need to go and you all need to be out of jobs. That's where I'm that's where I am now. Was that it? No, I kept, <laughs> couldn't figure ahead. out where I we're, kept we're hitting fi- that freaking we're fish, red. We're officially on the clock here, so go ahead. I know. I kept hitting that red microphone. Well, I think most of us agree with this, but the next deal is how do we do it? How does it happen? Um, it will be very painful for any, for any president who the president, you know, is in charge of that d- division It'll be very, it will be very painful for any president to actually go in and actually do it because you basically saw how they treated a president who only talked about doing it. Um, and, you know, Trump's words to them were a very threat to democracy. And so we need to protect the country. And as I've stated, that is not their job. Their job is not to override a voter's choice. And it, and it does not matter how insane someone is that we choose for president. It doesn't matter if it's Trump or if it's someone crazier than him. If we decide to buy the ticket and take that ride, it's, it's up to us if this country survives or fails. It really is that simple. So when Comey and McCabe and these guys, you know, all huddle around and say, we need to be the ones to protect democracy. And when you basically work to frame a president and uh, to undermine him, who is democratically elected, um, you're you're not actually protecting democracy you're you're the very thing that is against democracy and so these guys have this patriotic crop their ass um which is very much similar to you know we must save iraq and we must rebuild iraq and stuff like that it's the same kind of stuff david Frum is a perfect example of this this little fucking midget who just does not accept reality and he's genuinely stuck uh in 1988 and 89 still shouting about russians 
And so is Russia a geopolitical threat? Of course they are. Um, does it look like the influence over the election seems to be overblown? It certainly appears that way. And so it will be very, very painful for a president to come in, whether it's Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or whomever it is, to come in and just basically say, we're done with this department. You're all fucking fired uh, because you're also looking at field offices around the country. And so people say, Are, do you mean shutting those down? Yes, I mean shutting those down. And you turn it back over to local law enforcement and you figure out a way to do federal investigations. How many different departments do we have that can handle that multitude of stuff? I think we have a few. And so uh, I look at this and I'm just like, imagine having to upend the entire intelligence apparatus, the domestic intelligence apparatus in this country, and imagine the kind of pushback that a president assisted by the media who will come out and say that this is treason and this president can't do this. And uh, you'll have all of these intelligence officials on MSNBC and CNN and they're throwing it would be uh, it's almost undoable. I think it can be done, um, but it's something that, you know, it has to be balanced with voter concerns. If this person is sent into office with, yes, get rid of the FBI, it'll be a fairly easy task. And so, um, yeah, I'm I'm fully on board with they have to go. It's not just the Trump stuff. I'm fucking tired of things like investigating parents at school boards while you guys sit on your asses eating grilled cheese in a car while a guy walks into a grocery store with an with an AR-15. And then you go, oh, shit, we, we, we miss this guy. Um, it's that it's it's all compiled into stuff. It's become a politicized organization. and It really just needs to go. Uh, Peter, you're up. Go ahead. I, we'll, we'll get through Andrew and Kerfuffle here. Go ahead. I appreciate it, Stephen. So, uh, yeah, I, I, everybody's now agree with about the FBI with the Durham report. Uh, you talk a great deal about border crisis today, and many callers uh, did so too. Border represents the sovereignty of the United States. If there's a crisis in the southern border, it means uh, people outside this country not respecting our sovereignty. But, but we're being told now that sovereignty is a racist construct going back to the founding of this country and that us imposing a border on stolen land has to be atoned for. Ah, interesting. I have a different take, which I actually shared with uh, Mike Drop, another calling host, and he uh, he did uh, immigration politics in the 2024, and he likes my idea, so I'm going to share that with uh, your audience as well. My, my take has, has changed, which I think can be agreed upon by people from the left and the right. How often the United States government respect the borders of other countries? If we have a Monroe doctrines, if we invade Iraq, Pakistan, uh, uh, Afghanistan, messed up the Africans. So when we do those things, are we respecting other nation and the people of those nation, their borders and their sovereignties. If we do not, meaning the deep state keep on spending our taxpayers' money to interfere, in fact, negatively interfere, people and nations outside our border, then do those countries and those people from those countries need to respect our border? Regardless, you know, I don't buy into those, oh, it's a racist to claim this sovereignty. If we don't, 
then probably that's the payback. In other words, for each dollar spent on the defense, in fact, offensive spending for the Department of Defense, we need to set aside taxpayers' money to help those migrants coming in. If we want to instigate a war in Ukraine and Russia, then let's welcome all the immigrants from, from that two countries. And that is my take on that. I hope the left and the right can all agree. You want to solve the border crisis? We need to respect other people's border. If we don't, unfortunately, that's how it works. If, if Stephen yourself live in a small village, you are the richest person in that village. <coughs> All the or orphans is going to come to your house begging for money. If somehow people learn you are the reason that those children lost their parents, then more children is going to show up. More orphans is going to show up at your door. As simple as that. So I, you know, this is my take. And that guy, uh, Mike Drop, he likes some idea. He used to work for George W. Bush. He said he actually proposed something to the George Bush, George W. Bush uh, administration. He said, why don't we have a Marshall Plan for the non-white countries, such as South American countries? If we help the South American countries, like we have helped European countries, the white countries, maybe we will not have this many migrants coming from the South. That I was like, yeah, bingo. More wars than more migrants. We will not have this so many Vietnamese had we not have a Vietnamese war. And uh, that is how it goes. So both the left and right, no matter how much they want the wars, just remind them there will be migrants coming ashore. So that's something, you know, I want to share with your audience because uh, I can hear many callers before me has a I would say the old perspective, uh, just thinking, oh, these people are coming for uh, welfare benefits. These people, whatever. Well, like I mentioned earlier, they, we create a condition in their home country through our magnificent deep state that caused these people have nowhere to go. They are not political asylums. They are economic asylums for the most part because they have nowhere to have a decent and safe living. And America is only the rightful place for them to get in. So I have no problem with them coming in nowadays, because like I said, I would welcome open my door for Russians and Ukrainians. There's a lot of Ukrainians escaped. We should be welcoming them. So that's my take. Uh, I, I don't personally have an issue with welcoming <laughs> refugee Ukrainians. I've never really kind of had a problem with welcoming refugees. I think one of the the problems is we talked about asylum, for instance. Peter, Peter, where are you from, by the way? Just your accent. I'm, I'm from China. Oh, okay. So, um, and, and I and I certainly don't have an issue with welcoming refugees from China at all. Bring them all in. I'm I'm more than happy for that. I think where I think the where the issue stems, and like we talked about in the beginning, is what is our definition of asylum? What is our definition of refugee? And so, if you're saying, well, you know, Ukrainian, you know, we need we need to bring in refugees from Ukraine, for instance. I think you can make a legitimate case that there's a there's obviously homes that have been destroyed, parts of that that country have been destroyed. Um, 
the question becomes then, um, do we take in political refugees of, of any country? For instance, Venezuela is, is a good example. Do we take in refugees from any country is Cuban example. And of course, you can make an argument that the U.S.'s embargoes on Cuba have hurt them economically. That's generally a leftist argument. Um, and so I, I think that that's that's the thing that has to be debated is what what makes someone a refugee? Obviously, we took in refugees from Afghanistan. Uh, they were falling off wheel wells, wheel wells of departing C-130s to, yeah, go, to go to yep. Ramstein Air Base in Germany yep. and then flown over here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm kind of with you on that, especially with how badly the, the Biden administration completely foobarred that whole situation up. Yep. Um, so so I, I, I do think it's a debatable topic. Um, I, I, it depends on kind of where, you know, in particular – you know, like if you bring up every foreign conflict that the U.S. is involved in and therefore we have to take in those people, I think you have to look at this on a on a conflict by conflict basis. So um, are we bringing in Syrian refugees? Are we bringing in Iranian refugees? I, I think it depends basically on our own foreign political economic interests on on how we do that. If that well, we do not necessarily need a military conflict. Well, of course, uh, you talk about Afghanistan. Think about you know, during the withdrawal Vietnam War. That's a whole bunch of refugees trying to get on the plane and fell off the sky. Yeah. Just tons of them, right? Yeah. And, and going back, it's actually not just a military conflict. It's not just embargo. Just by assass- political assassination done by CIA, reg- regime change, color revolution. No, you name it. Doesn't matter whether you're a new con or new liberal. I don't give a F. I'm just saying you make other people's uh, home homeland a mess it's documented therefore you're responsible you went to into a china shop you broke something you own it that's the western civilization that's what we how we operate yeah i mean i I think it's a compelling debate and um i i I see pros and cons on both of it um i mean i'm telling like for instance somebody you know a rancher in texas who has cartel members invading his property or there was a story about a rancher who lives right on the border and her house is getting broken into every fucking week um to tell that rancher well sorry you have to accept these people from venezuela because of u.s policy in venezuela i think that that's going to be a a a hard sell for like the individual so i get i get the kind of like the 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 debate that you're you're having the the debate point you're having but i think if you're like telling people who actually live in those communities no sorry you have to bring these people in because of our uh embargoes on hugo chavez or whoever maduro down there whoever's in charge I think they're going to just look at you with a, a glazed look in their eyes. Actually, yeah, so no, I, this is I, a think, I think it's a, I think it's a good debate. Like, don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah, but actually, this is my point: is that I actually be the people that the rancher in Texas will like my idea. Say, don't get involved with the foreign affairs to start with. It's his taxpayers' money to build the bombs. It's his taxpayer money to pay the troops. But but we're not bombing Guatemala and Venezuela. Well, we our CIA's money is paid for that, and he, okay. that's his money, right? He actually okay. will be very conservative. He said, and that's, "I don't." That's, what, that's what you meant economic. by like. That's what you meant by economic and you know economic. It, it, exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's taxpayers' money. That's his money. He doesn't want these migrants coming in, and he doesn't want his money to pay for the deep state either. Right. So no, he's not going to look at me like I'm a crazy. No, I'm not. I'm very sane. 
I'm saying this is exactly what happened. <laughs> I was I wasn't saying you're cra- I would no, no I wasn't saying you're crazy. I'm just no, saying no, no. I'm saying politicians people being... people with like physical interests down on the border, for instance. Um, I don't think that they look at that part of it. It, it. I think they just want to be safe. And, you know, I, I guess I don't know how those people would make the argument to Greg Abbott. That's like, you know, stop, stop sending, you know, deep state money to Venezuela and those people won't be coming here. So I, I think there's a legitimate case to be made for, for some kind of asylum seekers and refugees. And, and I don't think that they're all based on U.S. involvement in foreign nations. And again, I, and I know what you mean by political assassination and propaganda campaigns um, and, you know, stepping in on interfering in elections because we do that, too. We did just did it in Brazil. Um, and so, no, I, I completely understand what you're saying. I'm just saying I don't know how much. I don't know how much of a sell that is to like someone who actually has land investments on, you know, the southern border. So I'll give you a last final word and then I got to get to Andrew and Kerfuffle and I got to jump I, off. I agree, appreciate it because I, what I'm, my observation is that in America, the sad part is that politicians just play the narrative based on their political needs. They actually do not want to solve the uh, border crisis. They just use it for their political gamesmanship. I, I, don't, so that's I my- don't think we have much disagreement on that one. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Peter. Andrew, go ahead. Hey, Stephen. Uh, I think everyone's kind of already said what I think about the immigration crisis, and I'm still just hoping that DeSantis can come back and just, I just start punching Trump soon. But the real thing I want to talk about is it's been a weird hockey um, playoffs, hasn't it? It's four teams in the southeast. I'm sure you're glad to hear that Canada, that Kanadistan has been defeated again. It has been a weird playoffs. Um, I was, I, I mean, the way it's gone, I was just like, if, if the Seattle Kraken are going to go through seven game, three seven game series, and then they're going to go to the finals against the Florida Panthers and lose in a sweep. And just because I said nothing matters. And of course, Dallas put an end to that. So, you're, I mean, you're looking at probably uh, the, the two teams that I guess probably belong in the Western Conference finals. And, I picked the Hurricanes at the beginning of the year to be the team in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, but right now, I don't know how you bet against the team that kicked out the Bruins and the Maple Leafs. No, the the Panthers, to me, fan. look like the Panthers remind me of the Tampa Bay Lightning. When Tampa Bay Lightning, remember, they so four years ago, they were President's Trophy winning team. They had the highest points, whatever, and they get bounced by the Columbus Blue Jackets in the first round. And then they come back and they win two Stanley Cups. And that kind of what the Florida Panthers look like. Florida, Florida last year was a President's Cup winner, a President's Trophy winner. Um, had the had the most points in the league. Looked like a forced, and it looked like it was going to be Colorado and Florida. And then they get bounced in the first round. And now it looks like you know the moves that they made uh, shorted up. And so I, I don't know how you bet against the Florida Panthers right now. Yeah, especially if I think if we had Svechnikov in Carolina, we might have a chance, but. It may just be, you know, with the injuries finally catch up to us. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good series. I don't think it's going to be a sweep or anything like that. I think it'll probably go six or seven. Um, I mean, Dallas and Vegas is just going to be a fucking brutal fight fest. I still think Vegas comes out of that one probably. Jack, um, so, yeah, you're going to you're gonna have the NHL, NHL probably with none of their big market teams are in the final four, which I think is really interesting. You know, Boston, New York. Um, I wouldn't even put Colorado as a big market, but obviously the, the team that won it last year. Um, so it's, you know, Bettman's probably, you know, there's the conspiracy that that's how Chicago got Connor Bedard basically is, um, 
we they need their big markets, and Gary Bettman is not going to put Connor Bedard in Columbus. He might put him in Arizona if he thought it would have gotten them a new deal, but yeah, that didn't happen. No, it's not. So I mean that, and that was interesting because I watched the draft lottery, and I was like, they didn't explain the flip. Like they just showed it off screen that Columbus, you know, who or whatever it was, whatever, uh, whatever odds flipped on it, and Columbus lost the number one pick and they so they were number two or number three and they didn't explain it they just said we have a change in order and it was like there you go and then they pull it out and it's the chicago blackhawks and you know they have the uh the the highest rated prospect since Connor mcdavid's now going to the nhl's third or fourth biggest market and you can you can call it a conspiracy if you want to but i don't think that that's an accident no well at least they're not going to the penguins again yeah, that was another one you had, and that that one in Edmonton getting the first round, the first pick for what four years in a row, and that's how they ended up with Nugent Hopkins and Taylor Hall and Connor McDavid. And it's taken years; it's taken a few years, but here is is the Oilers probably going to be you know a Western Conference Finals team here in two to three years if they can get their act together. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't imagine Gary Bettman's in a very good spot right now with, like you said, three, you know, four teams all in the warm South. Um, are all going to be playing for a Stanley Cup. Uh, well, you know, I'll just enjoy it while I can as a Carolina fan, and hopefully next year we'll finally have enough oomph next year to finally win one. But Yeah, I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't count you guys out yet. I just um, – and I was talking about with guys on my hockey team. I just – I don't know even, – even with the goalie situation in Florida, I don't know how you bet against a team that knocked out a historically good Bruins team – and a pretty, you know, a better than usual Maple Leafs team. I don't know how you bet against that team anymore. Like they basically said, you know, we just knocked out the two best teams in the East. And, you know, again, I don't know how you, I don't know how you don't pick that team right now. So the Florida Panthers are my pick for, uh, for the Stanley Cup. And of course that will only make DeSantis even more stronger. Well, hopefully he can toss um, Trump into an alligator. That's our hope. <laughs> you might I'm not sorry. Have to. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting desperate, and, it's, and just to see that orange, you know what, go down. So you have a good night, Stephen. Thanks, Andrew. You know, I said I said it like the and people talk about like I'm not all in on this yet, and I'm like, trust me, we have plenty of time for fucking silly season here. Don't don't you know? It's the Sean Connery speech from The Untouchables in the Canadian Shack. Don't don't want it to happen. Don't be anxious to happen. Just, just watch when it does happen. And that's kind of, uh, I'm trying to soak up a, a last few moments of calmness before uh, our lives all get extremely sillier. Uh, Kerfuffle, thanks for waiting. Glad I could fit you in. Uh, go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? <clears throat> yep, you're up. Okay. What do you, what's for dinner tonight? What are you making? Uh, I had a tuna salad which I use half olive oil instead of all um, mayonnaise. Another, another good substitute is avocado. I, yeah, I used to make paleo mayonnaise with avocado, garlic, lemon, all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, that's real good too. I pretty this much, one, I, scarfed, I scarfed two cans of tuna right before I jumped on here because I just, I just came out of a training session. And I was like, I, I didn't have time to like sit down and bake a chicken or anything like that. So I, I just threw two cans of tuna in a bowl with some oil and some uh, some vinaigrette, and I, I scarfed it down. And then I and then I jumped on here. Oh, nice! Yeah, cucumber is nice with that too. I, I don't have. I'll keep that one in mind. Yeah, I'm always that. That's a, that's another go. Cucumber's good with anything, though. 
Yeah, like, so I used... You put, um, you put cu cucumber in water, and it's like becomes a, a magic elixir. Yeah, you, mm, I'm mixed on it. I, you have to be light on the cucumber if you're going to mix it with lemon also. Like, those two kind of, they're good together, but they sometimes compete too much. Do you, do you chop it or blend it? No, no, no. It's You just sort of slice them all up and make for pretty water that has, like, an infusion. Okay. Yeah, so, like, lemonade with a little cucumber, but not too much. All right. Yeah. Um, well, lemon water, really. But this was with, so, carrot... Um, celery, purple onion, green onion, more celery, and then you put it in little romaine lettuce boats instead of a sandwich. Nice. Yeah. Well, we yeah. got that out of the, we got that out of the way. So, what's bugging you tonight? Okay, there's a couple things actually. It's my chance to be like my local expert. I actually do live in the West Hills in Portland. And I will tell you that one thing that drives me up the wall, there's, if you live up here, you know all the secret places to park your car if you want to put in to go hiking on the Wildwood and that kind of area, like basically from the zoo. Yep. Yeah. And there's so my, one... first, my first place that I lived in Portland was right off Northwest Davis. Okay. So I, before I owned a house, I lived down in the flats like in Alphabet District or Northwest or whatever you want to call it. And the reason I live in the hills is that there was this allowed one of the earlier um, homeless encampments was allowed to grow. And at the time it was called Dignity Village before they moved that out to like some land near the... <laughs> of course it yeah, was called it, Dignity Village. Yeah, I don't know if you were here at the time. But uh, so I used to have bum fights outside my window in my apartment. At, at night, and so I was like, wherever I'm going to live, it's got to be somewhere where you can't push a shopping cart to get there. That was my rule. You can't walk there. You can't push a car, shopping they, cart they to could, get they there. They create a zip line. They really wanted to get inventive. Well, you know, eventually what happens is, like, the thieves then, come then no matter what in cars. Peter Pan. Oh, it's, you know, it's it's been, like, just increasingly spiraling chaos. And... Um, we don't have the problem with the drug addicts camping up here, but what we do have is, you know, more break-ins. And all these people who had the virtue signaling, you know, lawn signs are like, oh my goodness, the consequences of our stupid activism. And one in particular that I know about that drives me up the wall, there's a couple that have a ginormous Italian villa sort of thing, and it's one of these two couples, two dogs, no kids in a house that could fit like five refugee families. And they have, you know, the virtue signaling sign in the front. And the girl, I call her Becky Tifa, the sort of semi, she's not cute enough to be a trophy wife, but she's kind of a trophy wife. Um, so Becky Tifa, the trophy wife, you know, marched everywhere with the Black Lives Matter and left the signs like all over her yard that summer and it was it was ridiculous it was just ridiculous and so now all over that neighborhood if you drive around you'll see uh neighborhood watch signs everywhere and signs saying don't leave valuables in your car people will break in and take them and all this stuff and you'll see once in a while a car with maybe a broken window that kind of thing and so i'm on the 
um, list for the neighborhood watch. And all these people are like, we need to hire security. We need to do this. We need to do that. And I'm like, how many of you, you know, Karens and Becky are the ones marching and thinking you're, you know, patting yourself on the back and putting the signs in your yards? And now you're pretending, oh, I had nothing to do with that. That's not what I meant. And what's the worst part of it is that, you know, if you're a black man in Portland today, as compared to 2019, you are three times as likely to be murdered as in 2019 or 2020 before the riots started. And so this, the black lives are mattering less. And you've got black parents, you know, I've spoken about before, begging police to arrest their kids who are stealing the Kias and crashing them because they're afraid their kid's going to die in a car crash. You know, and Becky Tifa in particular, her husband is a trauma surgeon. And the trauma surgeons have, um, you know, a group and they, they partly make money on their own services, but they partly make profit sharing on the group. So she creates more trauma and he gets richer off more trauma. And so they've bought like a new vehicle, you know, a new fancy outdoor vehicle, you know, new bicycles, all this stuff. One of the things that was the funniest is they live right near the trails and she bought a, uh, <coughs> what do you call it, that you run in place, a treadmill. And you could see her running on the treadmill at the window like during COVID. She, so that I, I was like, you are literally steps from outdoors. Why are you running in a room by yourself? I mean, it was so funny because, you know, anybody who's like walking or hiking or whatever could see this person doing it. And I'm like, you know, don't let the air infect you, I guess, you know, but it was really funny. But it's not funny because this is how we end up with, you know, poor people suffering because rich white liberal women, you know, want to you know, feel special and go march around with signs. And it's the same thing with the drugs. It's the same thing with the crimes. And, you know, nobody up here, unless, I mean, it is possible, of course, that somebody's kid gets a fentanyl and dies. You know, that can happen in any family. But for the most part, you know, all the downstream bad effects, it's almost like we're shitting downhill and downhill gets all our shit, but we just keep shitting up here. That's exactly the kind of, of, you know, recreational activism that happens among these, you know, women who last year's cool purse is next year's, you know, yard sign that says what a good person I am. I'm just venting. <laughs> uh, I, I don't, I don't, have, I don't have much to add. It's, is why, it's why, just all NIMBYism. It doesn't matter if it's the border. It doesn't matter if it's drugs. It doesn't matter if it's crime. It's all NIMBYism. It's all this group of influential elite white women who 100%, I'm like, the country would be better. And I'm a white woman, sort of, kind of. I'm Jewish. I laugh when people call me white because I'm like white since 10 minutes ago. I certainly, you know. Well, no, like, you're, you're culturally black now, by the way. You know, I am culturally black because until 10 minutes ago, the Jews were the N-words of Europe. And life was not like peachy keen until the Holocaust. Life was crappy before the Holocaust and then got even worse. And if you wonder why Jews didn't immediately notice that everything is dangerous and you must leave, it's because it's been so bad so many times 
and we basically sucked it up many times for hundreds and thousands of years. And so they're like, oh, this time it's even worse. That's why they missed the chance. Because many times before that, we just hid in the basement while the, you know, Cossacks burned our houses. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a ball of sunshine. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will give you one last sentence to wrap this up, and then I got to... You know, I just want to point out that the situation, uh, the first caller was saying, you know, other countries in Europe, they don't let people walk in. Yes, they do. Don't you remember it was like 20, after 2013, I forget, maybe it was in 2015, that millions of, quote, Syrian refugees, most of whom were from other countries than Syria, walked right into Europe with the help of the same Soros-funded networks. And those millions, like, there's, they're in Germany now, they're in France now, they're, in, they're, right, they're taking dinghies across the channel from France in the tens of thousands into England right now. And it could affect the English um, elections because of this, if you look at the illegal immigration there. And it's the same thing. It's single men um, of fighting age uh, from very aggressive cultures that do not respect Western values. And that's the same thing we've just invited into America, is, is single men, very aggressive, very bad attitude towards women, you know, not a lot of taking no for an answer, very bad attitude about like age of consent, you know, perfectly okay to force yourself on little boys and girls. Um, I, in my time in Portland, the only time I've had men like make lewd gestures with their mouth at me or attempt to grab me, it's always been somebody who probably barely speaks English from a Central American country and, you know, is like working doing dishes or whatever, you know, food service, we all know, would not exist without these people. But um, so that's a whole problem in itself. You know, I, the, the kind of jobs that I did in high school and college and, and after don't exist anymore because they're done by cheaper Central American illegal labor. You know, so the idea that we need these people is false. The idea that this is why teenagers don't have jobs is true. So, you know, the, but this happened in Europe and none of the citizens of Europe voted for it and none of them wanted it. It was these elites forcing it on them. And the reason that they do it is because Christian Freeland of, uh, of, of Canada, Christian Freeland, just gave a speech like not long ago where she was saying that, the, you know, she was giving a speech on economics and she said the problem is that... Um, the manual laborers of North America are like the white working class is overpaid. And that's why we have to have, you know, all these like open immigration is because manual labor is too expensive here. So it's not, it's not by accident. The, uh, you know, the other side effects of it, they're like, oh, well, it's the cost of doing business, but they're doing it on purpose to bring, you know, cheap manual labor. It's, it's not an accident. You know, the, the other reasons that sound even scarier about replacement theory and things like that, I, that I don't know about. But they're doing it basically for cheap, cheap labor. And it's the same Chamber of Commerce Republicans who did this along with, you know, these Democrats that see future Democrat voters. Kerfuffle, thank you. I got a jet. Okay. So I, I appreciate you jumping on. Um, but I, I'm late for a for a body bearing 
Okay. So good to hear from you. Thank you. H handle handle the Walking Dead up there. So we're all with you. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Bye. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, this is just a good short uh, midweek version of uh, Versus Media Live on Call in episode 102. Let's get ready to rumble. Like I said, um, as more information comes in and I know more about how that affects what I do here, what we do uh, once or a couple times a week, I will, guys, let you know. So, again, a lot of other good thoughts on border and stuff, and I appreciate a foreign perspective as well on a lot of this. Uh, I will be back on Substack tomorrow and probably back here Friday night uh, to close out the week. So, again, thanks for your time. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for joining the show. Like I said, you guys kind of keep it up there towards the top, one, two, or three, and uh, I appreciate it, and it kind of it makes the time doing this worth it. So, again, thank you. Uh, I will talk to you guys most likely on Friday. Cheers. Take care.